Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Problematic Women. I'm Virginia Allen. You know, when we talk about free speech and we talk about the power of being able to live in a country where we can say what we want, then we're hit by culture and society today that so often says, well, you can't quite say what you want to say. And it talks about safe spaces. And for those on college campuses, I know that you all have certainly experienced at least once or twice probably having to bite your tongue because you were with a crowd of people that you knew thought very differently or at least felt that they had to think very differently than maybe you do. So that is why I'm so excited for today's conversation. I'm speaking with a clinical psychologist named Dr. Chloe Carmichael. And she has a blog where she talks about big issues that are facing our country today, but from the perspective of a conservative psychologist. So she recently just wrote a piece called Free Speech May Benefit Mental Health, the Importance of Open Dialogue. I'm so excited to dive into this conversation with her. Let's go ahead and get to it. Free speech might just improve mental health. And here with us to talk about that is clinical psychologist and author of the book, Nervous Energy, Dr. Chloe Carmichael. Dr. Carmichael, thanks for being here. Thanks, Virginia. It's great to be back with you again. So I'm so excited to talk with you about your recent blog regarding mental health and free speech. But before we dive into all of that, I was wondering if you could just take a minute and share a little bit about how you got into the field of psychology and why it's such a passion for you. Sure. Yeah. So I actually, I was a yoga teacher (laughs) before I was a psychologist, Uh, you know, we're going back a couple of decades here. And I was working, you know, individually with students in New York City. And I was noticing I would I would design custom programs for them with meditation and physical poses that would be, you know, complementary. So if somebody was trying to find balance in their life, we would do balancing yoga postures and balancing meditations. Um, And then I just got really into noticing the changes that people were making. And um, I wanted to learn more about the, the brain side of it. And that's, you know, what prompted me to go and become a clinical psychologist so I could understand people better and, you know, work with them um, in a deeper level. Mm, that's really neat. That's awesome that what began as uh, as really teaching people how to physically take care of their bodies and emotionally transformed into now you taking on the challenge of, of uh, going back to school and becoming a clinical psychologist. I, I love that, that you took on that challenge. And uh, and now the fact that you have a platform to get to speak into so many people's lives in a really unique way. And, and one of the ways that you do that is through your blog. And, and you recently wrote a blog post titled Free Speech May Benefit Mental Health, the Importance of Open Dialogue. Dr. Carmichael, we hear so much in our society about the dangers of hate speech and things like that. But you argue that free speech and debate is actually really beneficial for our mental health. Why did you see a need to, to write this piece and specifically to write it from the perspective of a psychologist? 
Well, yeah, that's an interesting question, Virginia. So I think free speech has come up a lot lately. So, you know, with, you know, Elon Musk and Twitter, for example, or even in my own profession, there's a lot of topics that are taboo. And it just feels like if you don't answer certain questions in certain ways, then, you know, you're labeled as, say, a toxically masculine person or, you know, a misogynist or a racist, you know, um, there's so many things where just, you know, even the the choice of words that we use, I think, can um, get pathologized to the point where people are are afraid to talk. They're afraid to be themselves and cancel culture and all these things are coming up. And for whatever reason, it seems like there's not a lot of psychologists that are speaking out, you know, about this issue, probably because it, it doesn't feel politically correct uh, to stand up for for free speech. Um, because as you said, there's so much of an emphasis on hate speech and bullying and how we should limit speech. Um, and that for whatever reason seems to be a, po- a more popular topic amongst psychologists, uh, to the point where even standing up for free speech It's as if, you know, you as if you're advocating for hate speech, you know, or as if you're advocating for bullying. Um, And I just can't stand it when I feel like common sense, obvious things are are just not not being allowed to be talked about. Like you and I originally connected because I was speaking out um, from a psychologist's perspective about masks and children. And, you know, to your point of why I am speaking specifically as a psychologist is because I do think that there are mental health factors that the general public might kind of feel intuitively like, hey, open dialogue feels good. Freedom of expression feels good. But they don't necessarily have the vocabulary to explain why from a psychology perspective. Yeah. So dive into that a little bit more, if you would. I mean, what happens in our brains when we know that we have uh, the opportunity to speak freely and we can say what we feel and have that free exchange of ideas versus when we're told, you know, you have to only speak within the confines of these parameters. Well, a lot of things happen, Virginia. So, I mean, I think about what happens in our brain and I also think about what's, what happens in our social relationships and to our self-esteem and all those things. But since, you know, you specifically asked about the brain, one of the things that I think is interesting is psychology studies have shown that labeling feelings mitigates uh, the amygdala hijack response. So for people, you know, who maybe don't know what that is, even though talk of the amygdala, I think has become so popular in just consumer (laughs) psychology that most people have a general idea that the amygdala, you know, is related to fear and to that, you know, fight, flight or freeze response. And when we can put our feelings into words, that part of our brain actually slows down a little bit. And that's good. We want it to slow down. We we don't want to be in a fight or flight situation over, you know, just trying to have a conversation and, and talk about how we feel inside. So um, on, on a very hardwired level, the, it, it does affect the brain to be able to say, you know, what you think and what you feel. Also, from an evolutionary psychology standpoint, um, evolutionary psychologists have speculated that part of the reason our society 
um, evolved to such a sophisticated species is because of our gift of language, because we can exchange ideas and, you know, rapidly learn from one another and form bonds and, and learn not only from one another, but about one another. And that enables things like teamwork and, you know, cooperation and the advancement of knowledge. Um, so as also, of course, social relationships, you know, psychologists talk a lot about the importance of social support. And, you know, how can we really have social support when we when we're tied up in knots, afraid to say the wrong thing. <laughs> mm. No, I think we've all been in in those situations before where you're doing that song and dance in your mind maybe with a friend or a family member who you know thinks very differently than you. And it's the, wait, am I allowed to say this? Am I going to offend them? And it's amazing then the difference that you'll realize when you're with someone that you know doesn't really care that they're they're going to be okay even if they don't agree they'll be okay with whatever you say and just even kind of the emotional and mental freedom that you'll have instantly from that it's fascinating totally i would agree with you there virginia so and and on the other side of that exchange is the importance as you said um, not only for the speaker to know that the other person's, you know, everything's going to be okay, even if we disagree, but for the listener to know mm. that he or she will be okay, even if he or she hears something that they disagree with, you know, this whole thing about, you know, words are violence and, you know, we have to have safe spaces. That's actually a very disempowering position, mm -hmm. not only to put speakers in, but to put listeners in to suggest that we are that weak, that we could, you know, be violated, you know, <laughs> by by somebody who says something that that we disagree with. It's actually very disempowering and I think anxiety provoking to live your life that way. Like, God forbid you hear the wrong thing and then your whole day is going to be derailed or something. Mm, yeah, it really undermines uh, our strength as as a person in many ways. You're so right. Now, I I love that you you go so far in in one place in your in your blog uh, to say that people should have permission to say what you uh, refer to as stupid things. And I think that that's so great because we are all guilty of at some point in our lives saying many things that uh, later back, later on, we look back and think, wow, that was that was dumb. Why did I say that? But there's actually a health benefit, you say, to allowing people, permitting people to say stupid things. Explain that a little bit more. Yeah, absolutely. So when we can say stupid things, like you've said, I, I think we've all had the experience of of hearing ourselves say something. And it is the process of, of putting our thoughts into words. Um, in psychology language, what that does is it helps us to externalize them, to separate them, to realize, okay, I, I have a thought or a theory or a belief, and I can speak it and I can talk about it. But it's, it's separate from who I am. It's a thought that I have, you know, versus, um, the fabric of who I am. So speaking things actually gives people a little bit of a healthy separation and detachment from, from those things, ironically. And so when we can hear ourselves say things in a relaxed way, we're actually better able to evaluate them to hear how they sound when we have the ability to, to just think them through. I mean, as a psychologist, it happens to me all the time when people are in my office, you know, and 
you know, the classic example, right? Like somebody with OCD and I'm like, well, why do you feel that you need to wipe every doorknob? And they say, well, because I, I think if I don't, you know, I, I, I could pick up a germ and die, you know, and a lot of times as they say it, they'll kind of like even start rolling their eyes because they're like, okay, as I actually think this through, I start to realize that maybe it's it's not quite the same as, as it's feeling in my mind. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's how being able to just talk our way through things, even if they are you know, nonsensical helps us to get that perspective and realize it. Mm, Well, and that really leads in to my next question, because you write that when we can separate our thoughts from our core identity, we can set the stage for growth. So how does growth take place in us when we can begin to realize that, um, you know, our, our identity isn't necessarily exactly what what we think or we're saying? Yeah. So, I mean, as I mentioned, I was a yoga teacher before I was a psychologist. And so in Buddhism, there's a big emphasis on, you know, being able to have a detachment from your thoughts. And actually, psychology has really picked up on mindfulness, which is, you know, this idea again, that you kind of observe your thoughts going by, and you you realize that that those are just thoughts that you're having. Those thoughts are not... Um, you per se. And the ability to have your thoughts and feelings change over time is essential to growth. I mean, that almost is growth, right? Like if you were to imagine some of the thoughts and beliefs that you had as a teenager (laughs) versus the ones that you had in college, you know, versus the ones maybe that you have after you have children and you start to accrue other life experiences, um, that's a process of maturity. And of course, your thoughts and your feelings and your beliefs change But if we don't allow ourselves to have that happen because we feel we have to rigidly hold on to a certain belief, um, you know, then it's like we're stunting ourselves from from growing. And then I personally think it gets even worse when we do change the beliefs, but only when we're informed that it is time to change the belief, right? Like what is uh, considered politically correct now is sometimes opposite of, you know, what was considered politically correct at at a different time, right? Um, and and if we don't allow ourselves to, you know, think and and feel our way through some of these questions about, say, racial dynamics or sex and politics dynamics or just whatever it is, but we only update our vocabulary and our talking points when we read an article that says, hey, this is the way you're supposed to think now, um, then we're really limiting ourselves from having our own growth. It's like we're shutting that down. Mm, that's so critical. Well, I would love to ask you uh, about one of the statements that you make in this blog. And in my opinion, it's probably the most controversial thing that you say. You write that words are not violence. But I know that, you know, many people in our culture would say no words really can be violent because they can feel violent to us or um, they can feel hurtful. They can cut deep. So what what would kind of be your your response to that? And why do you write that uh, we shouldn't consider words to be violence? Yeah, I mean, so, yes, words can cut deep, right? 
But that's just a figure of speech. That's just an expression, right? That's completely different from having somebody pull out an eight inch knife and plunge it into your stomach, right? <laughs> I don't mean to be graphic, but I mean that it's, it's a completely different experience than, than having someone actually physically harm you. Um, and, and I just think it's, I mean, as a psychologist, for example, when we're assessing and evaluating people, um, part of a responsible assessment is to ask the person, you know, do you have thoughts of hurting yourself or others, right? And if I had somebody in my office who said, yes, I, I think about it and I actually have plans to do it, I would be irresponsible and probably doing something illegal if I just said, okay, well, goodbye, you know, thanks for coming. We'll talk more next week, you know, <laughs> whereas if the person was in my office and they said, yeah, you know what? I have plans to tell off my neighbor. I'm going to really give my neighbor a piece of my mind. Well, that's fine, right? As a psychologist, in fact, I would probably be in trouble if I tried to um, have that person restrained, right? <laughs> because they said that they were going to uh, tell somebody off and maybe, you know, use some some bad words and, and say some mean things, right? Um, I would actually be out of my scope uh, of authority if I tried mm -hmm. to have that person, you know, restrained over that. So, I, I just think it's really important that we understand, you know, words are not violence I, for many reasons. I think it cheapens the, the concept of actual violence. And it also makes people afraid. Again, like if you have people in a mindset where they believe that somebody um, is endangering them with words, we're actually increasing people's, you know, anxiety and depression, I mean, as well as you know, sense of helplessness, right? Because you can't really ever control what other people might say. So you're actually feeling more helpless. And you might then feel more entitled to respond to people with physical violence over the words that they are speaking. So that type of, you know, uh, framework, I think, actually sets the stage um, for physical violence, mm -hmm. which is... Um, you know, much more dangerous than, 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 you know, verbal sparring. Yeah. Well, and you mentioned, you mentioned anxiety and depression. And of, of course we live in a culture and a society today where unfortunately so much of the population does struggle to some degree with anxiety or depression. And there's so many different factors that we can point to for, for why that might be. Um, but you argue that actually having free speech could help to lessen our anxiety and our depression within culture. Uh, explain that a little bit further. Sure, absolutely. So for many reasons, uh, but one thing is, is the matter of social support, which I mentioned earlier. So if somebody's coming to a psychologist because of, you know, um, pathological levels of anxiety and depression. And as a quick sidebar, I have to say, not all anxiety is bad. You know, my book, um, Nervous Energy, Harness the Power of Your Anxiety, actually explores the healthy function of anxiety. So not all anxiety is bad. Um, but if somebody is um, in, in a sick place, you know, with anxiety or in a sick place with depression, and they're coming to a psychologist, 
again, one of the factors that the psychologist is going to cover, it's part of, you know, psychologist training is, you know, you ask, do you have thoughts of harm to self or others? And you also ask if the person has social support, because that's been known to be a protective factor, a curative factor, a, you know, resilience factor is, is social support. And, my thought is, how could anybody really have social support if, um, if A, they're too afraid to like open up their mouth and speak and talk to people because they're really afraid of saying the wrong thing and getting canceled? Or they are talking to people, but they're actually keeping their real views private because they have a fear that they could be, you know, canceled or ostracized over those views. In that situation, the person is not only, um, not actually getting social support, but they could actually, I think, even be damaging their sense of self-worth and their sense of self-esteem by, you know, behaviorally demonstrating through their self-censorship that they themselves are not, you know, worthy of of respect or connection with others um, if their true self were to be known. Mm, that's critical. Also, yeah, mm -hmm. one more, you know, thing about it is that when we do put our thoughts um into words, it's been shown to increase our sense of control, right? That's why when people go to, that's why one of the reasons why talk therapy is effective. Some of it is because of the techniques that we're teaching, but sometimes part of the technique we're teaching is, is giving people emotional vocabulary and encouraging them to, you know, speak their truth and, and put their experience into words that that's very empowering for people. It increases their sense of self-control. Um, and that doesn't just happen in a therapy office. Ideally, that will happen with friends and family, unless, you know, there's some kind of a verboten speech model situation going on. Mm. Now, what advice would you give to, let's say, a college student who's listening to this and thinking, I would love to feel free to speak my mind, but I am on a college campuses where there are safe spaces and, uh, you know, where there is a lot of emphasis on making sure that you say the right thing and not offending people. For, for those that are agreeing with you, that want to take part and engage in free speech in a more active way, but maybe they're in an environment where that's challenging, what would you say to them? I will answer that, Virginia, but first I have to say as well about the safe spaces, since you mentioned that word, mm. um, in, in the blog, I talk about this as well, which is that ironically, um, s prohibiting free speech, I think actually undermines safe spaces mm. because when we don't let people say things, it's not that those viewpoints go away. It's just that people hide them. And I personally feel more safe when I can know somebody's true feelings. Like if somebody uh, hates women and, you know, <laughs> doesn't, you know, whatever, every, every negative view that they might have about me for whatever reason, I actually feel safer knowing that people will, will speak what's on their mind and that I can then evaluate and assess, you know, how I feel around that person rather than just um, having everything completely under wraps and it's, it's all just this big guessing game. Mm -hmm. um, but but to sense. your point, you know, I mean, college campuses are tough, okay? So I'll say when I was getting my PhD in clinical psychology, I used to laugh at professors' political jokes that I did not think were funny. I had to, you know, kind of sing their song and almost pass as somebody that would match, you know, them 
and their political views, because in academia, there is, you know, this um, extreme dominance of, of, of a more leftist viewpoint, and it does affect your grades. It, it does affect all kinds of things about, you know, the academic choices that you have. So I just want to recognize it's, it's a real thing um, that people are going through. Um, so I, I guess, you know, to answer your question, I, I think whatever you do, it's really important that you find some people that you can talk to, that you can be your real self with. Because another issue that I talk about in the blog is that if we don't have the chance to talk through things and we have to constantly stuff them down, we can actually lose awareness of our own views. We can suppress them and repress them to the point where where we don't even know them anymore um, and detach from ourselves. And that sets the stage, you know, certainly for anxiety and depression, but it also stops growth. So definitely make sure, you know, that you have at least some people that you can talk to. Um, it's also important to talk it through because honestly, I think that stopping people from having free speech is almost like a form of abuse. And when we're in an abusive situation, it's really important to keep talking about that abuse so that we don't unconsciously internalize and normalize the abuse and start to think, you know, that we're bad for having these thoughts or, or, or that there's something normal or okay about um, an institution, an academic institution that wants to squash, you know, freedom of expression, right, As, and healthy debate and things like that. So um, definitely making sure that you have some kind of an outlet. Now, if you're feeling like you might even want to take it a little bit of a step further, um, and you're thinking you might want to speak up in class, right, or uh, on campus and things like that, um, everybody has to find their own way. But general thoughts is that um, there's strength in numbers. So you might want to consider, you know, asking an ally to come with you or to say, you know, I'm going to try challenging professor so-and-so on such and such, you know, would you back me up or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, also in psychology, we can do what's called narrating your experience. Um, and that can help to soften things. So if you're going to speak out, you know, speak up to say, around a professor or a group of friends or whatever, you can narrate your experience by, by, by sharing your vulnerability, by saying, you know, this is kind of hard for me to share because I think we're all so, you know, nervous about, you know, cancel culture and, you know, maybe being misunderstood or, you know, people who cannot tolerate a disagreement. But um, I, I really just want to share anyway for the sake of, of open dialogue, because I think it would be really helpful and important. So with that said, you know, here's my thoughts about X, Y, Z. So that way you're at least even kind of reminding people that, you know, you're a human being and you're vulnerable and, and you're trying to come from a good place. That's so practical. Thank you so much for sharing that because we hear sometimes the encouragement to, hey, speak out, be bold, um, but to actually have some practical tools for what that looks like, what that could look like is super helpful. So thank you so much for sharing that. Sure. One more, one more tip on that too is to consider talking to, you know, your professor um, behind the scenes as well to say, you know, I have some kind of different viewpoints from some of the things that you've shared in class and I, you know, want to speak up, but I, I, I don't want to, 
you know, come across like I'm being disrespectful. Like, here's some of my thoughts. You know, do you think this is the kind of thing that that we could ever talk about in class? You know, mm-hmm. I mean, and it's really sad, but I, I think a lot of professors would even kind of frankly bully uh, a student behind the scenes with something like that. But maybe at least some professors, you know, would say, would kind of realize like, oh, yeah, you know, I, I should I should open up a little bit more. I mean, right now, Virginia, at the time that you and I are speaking, of course, I think it was yesterday or the day before Project Veritas released, all, you know, these videos of school administrators in Cobb as well as, you know, Trinity School in New York. And they're just openly saying, yeah, like, we don't tolerate um, you know, viewpoints outside of our leftist, you know, liberal orthodoxy. And um, it, I think one of the um, administrators from Trinity was like, it really bothers me when the white boys think that they can answer back with their opposite viewpoints, right? And mm-hmm. so if you're dealing with a professor, you know, that is in that type of a mindset, um, to be honest, I would probably just sing their song and then collect my A and then go on and just talk about it with somebody else or yeah. something. I don't know. I mean, because it, it's a tough one in college these days. Yeah. Choose your battles wisely. <laughs> well, before we let you go, Dr. Carmichael, um, we have a question that we love to ask all of our guests on this show. Uh, and that is, do you consider yourself a feminist? Yes or no? Why or why not? Well, so that's such an interesting question. Um, so like when we think about the etymology of the word uh, feminist, it, you know, just comes from the Latin word, you know, femina, like meaning woman. Um, and so in that sense, you know, yes, I'm a woman. I love being a woman and I, I'm interested in advocating uh, for women. But what that looks like for me might look very different than, say, you know, a gender studies major, you know, from Brown or something like that. So I kind of don't want to allow any particular ideology group to own the word feminist. I, you know, kind of want to say, hey, you know, we can all in our own way advocate for women. And that might look different to the point of free speech, (laughs) you know, um, for, for different people. So, you know, for example, I... I'm I'm a psychologist and entrepreneur and an author and a speaker, but I'm also a wife and a mom. And um, it was really important to me when uh, I was, you know, going to become a mom that I wanted to take, um, you know, really change the amount of work I was doing because I wanted to um, have that become, you know, my my primary role and 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 not have my work stuff um, interfere with that. And as a woman, to me, you know, that is a feminist choice that I want to be able to do, you know, my life the way that I want. Um, So I don't know if other people would agree with that, of of that I that I'm a feminist, uh, because I'm getting into, um, you know, baking brownies and things like that. (laughs) But to me, as a woman, I really enjoy the chance to be able to to claim whatever part of womanhood I want Mm -hmm. whenever I want to. Mm, Strong answer. Thank you so much for sharing. And Dr. Carmichael, thank you for joining us on the show today. This has been a pleasure. Sure. And if people want to read the blog, um, I'm going to have an easy way that they can get there, which is they can go to makeachange.us and makeachange.us and it will take them directly to the blog. Excellent. Thank you. And we'll be sure to leave um, a link to your website and to the blog in the show notes today. Um, And of course, people can follow you across social media platforms. And we just uh, thank you so much for for your time today. 
Thanks, Virginia. Great to speak with you as always. Take care. And thank you all so much for listening to this Tuesday edition of Problematic Women. Of course, you can join us on Thursday. Lauren is going to be hosting the show uh, from a conference, actually, down in Florida. So super excited to bring you all some great conversations on Thursday. In the meantime, please subscribe and share if you haven't done so already. Have a great week, and we'll see you Thursday. Problematic Women is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is a product of The Daily Signal, produced by Lauren Evans and Virginia Allen. And be sure to follow Problematic Women on Instagram. We produce Problematic Women in remembrance of our dear friend and former co-host, Bree Payton.